0: This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary, now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Patrice Gopo. Her work has appeared in the New York Times and Washington Post. She is the author of All the Colors We Will See. thank you for joining the conversation.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Now, while the book is about your story, and we want people to ultimately go out and purchase the book, and while we'll get to the book momentarily, tell us a little bit more about you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I am the Black American daughter of Jamaican immigrants, and I was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. So that's where my story really begins. Uh, even though I am now living here in Charlotte, North Carolina, I still think of myself as an Alaskan because that is like my home. It's the place that I lived for the first 18 years of my life. And uh, one of the questions that people ask me a lot is what was that like growing up there? And I often think of it from several perspectives because I think there's the perspective of growing up in a community that a lot of people don't necessarily know tons about, but it's kind of remote and it, um, I don't know, has a certain interest to it. So I think there's that aspect of what was it like growing up in a community like that, growing up in this very northern region around so much nature and wildlife. But I think the other aspect that comes in uh, is also this idea that I grew up as a black girl in Alaska, and that's kind of a rarity that I hear in people's questions. And so there's also that kind of, what was that like growing up in this, um, where I lived in Anchorage, Alaska, it was a predominantly white community. So, So that's part of my story is navigating those worlds of really loving a place, but at the same time, feeling maybe somewhat disconnected from the place because there weren't a lot of people like me and my family who were living there. So as I said, I lived there for the first basically 18 years of my life until I went to college. And I went to college in Pennsylvania and I studied chemical engineering. And I um, did that for a couple of years. I practiced as a chemical engineer, worked as a chemical engineer for a couple of years at Eastman Kodak. So I was working on uh, traditional photography film, which we don't even use anymore, hardly. So when I even tell my daughters about what I did, they are just clueless as to what their mother was working on. But yeah, so I worked as a chemical engineer for a couple years and then I went back to graduate school. I went to the University of Michigan for graduate school and I have two graduate degrees. I have an MBA and a master's of public policy because my passion was really to work in the field of community development. I really wanted to work to address issues of injustice in the world and I felt that partnering an MBA and a master's of public policy would help me to enter into like economic and community development spaces. And those degrees ultimately took me to Cape Town, South Africa for a 10 week project where I was working with women, helping them start small businesses in some of the townships in Cape Town and It was during that time that through mutual friends, I met the man that I would ultimately marry. He's from Zimbabwe, but he went to the University of Cape Town, and we met there, and um, after we got married, I moved to Cape Town, and I lived there for a couple of years. My first daughter was born in Cape Town, and it was in that season when I was in Cape Town, and at this point, I was living there, and I actually didn't have a work permit. So I'd gotten married and I didn't have a work permit. And so I was kind of not really doing the work that I was trained to do. And it was in this season, just after my daughter was born, uh, that I started writing. And I discovered this passion that I had for what words could do and the importance of sharing stories as a way to speak into issues of justice that I cared about. So that was really how my writing journey began in Cape Town. And then We ended up moving to Charlotte, North Carolina when my daughter was about a year and a half old. Uh, I just wanted to be closer to my mother, who was in Alaska still at the time, but Cape Town and Alaska are pretty far apart, and Charlotte, North Carolina, and Alaska are a little bit closer. So that's what ultimately brought us to Charlotte. And people ask me what it's been like for us being here. And I just feel like Charlotte has been a place that has been a gift to my writing career that I have found so much support here in terms of taking classes I've received several awards here for my writing it's just been a very uh affirming place for me as a writer to grow and develop and uh, just enter into that space of being a writer so so that's my story in a nutshell I'm sure I've left out some aspects of it but that's that's me and that's what I'm up to
0: yeah. There'll always be that one friend of yours that's listening to it and it's like, Hey, you, you didn't mention me. Uh, so, right. Uh, right. <laughs> well, let's go back and unpack some of that. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah I know I was
1: right through it. I know there's lots of things there.
0: Uh, well, let, I mean, let's start with your, your folks. I mean, that's, uh, kind of, a, a marquee piece of your story that, uh, two Jamaicans, um, you know, make it up to Alaska, you know, Right. Why Alaska of all places? You know, I,
1: I know. It, it yeah, a vastly
0: different climate. You know, the only the only thing I have relative to that experience is I was in Seattle uh, this winter, and I went from like twenty degrees to landing in Baton Rouge, and it was like seventy five that day. And I thought, okay, get these right. winter clothes off me. So I can't imagine going from Jamaica to Alaska.
1: Right. Yeah. No. I mean, it's a great question, and it's a question that people frequently ask. Uh, and actually, I know we're going to talk about the book a little bit more later, but it was one thing in the book that I felt like I need to get this story out quickly because it is something that people are curious about. So the basic story is that my father, he, um, he immigrated to the United States when he was, I think, 16 or 17 years old. And he went to New York City. And um, so he became a permanent resident at that point. And then this was in the late 60s. And so in the in the early 70s, he was actually drafted into the Vietnam War. But by this point in time, he had actually gone back to Jamaica and met my mother. And so he's a permanent U.S. resident in Jamaica, um, and he gets this draft notice. And in order to maintain his permanent residency status, he needed to respond to this draft notice. So he did. And ultimately, what happened when he responded is that he um, out of his kind of basic training group, everyone was sent to Vietnam except for him and one other person and he says he doesn't remember where the other person was sent, but he was sent to Alaska and so that was kind of the beginning of how my family you know established these stories in Alaska, a place they never would have picked. and so my father moved up to Alaska and he and my mom are in this long distance relationship. And at one point he goes back to Jamaica and they get married while he's there. He goes back to Alaska. My mother finishes nursing school and she graduates from nursing school. And then she moves directly from Kingston to Anchorage. So she really moved from like Jamaica to Alaska, whereas my father's move was a little bit more uh, circuitous, uh, you know, stopping in New York and things as well. So Yeah, so that's kind of how they ended up there. And then my father, he was only in the military for a few years. But I think when, you know, when he got out of the military, they had already formed friendships there. I think, you know, thinking of going back to Jamaica, moving it probably was expensive. And they thought, well, we'll just try it here. And they did. And so that's where they ended up raising their family, raising their two girls.
0: Well, it says a lot about your mom, because that's got to be love to go from Jamaica all the way to Alaska, (laughs) especially in the dead of winter.
1: Yeah, right, right. Well, I think she did move in the summer, if I remember correctly. But, But, you know, it's interesting, because I feel like there are things within our family stories that kind of speak into the next generation. So many, many years later, when I had met this guy in Zimbabwe, or sorry, not in Zimbabwe, this Zimbabwean guy in Cape Town, my husband, Yasha. And he was in Cape Town. And I had actually, after I finished my 10 weeks in Cape Town, and I'd met him, I'd gone back to Alaska. And so we're corresponding and writing these notes. And I realized that, you know, there there's a lot of trepidation a mother can feel about her daughter dating someone on the other side of the world. And yet I felt like this was the perfect story for our family, because we already had 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 experience with what that could look like.
0: Now, as you said earlier, you know, you studied chemical engineering, uh, you went on to business and public policy, um, Mm -hmm. and you talked a little bit about that transition into writing, but, you know, uh, what was it about writing that began to um, come alive in you after doing these three degrees that have nothing to do with the work you're doing now?
1: I know, I know, it's true. Um, You know, I will say this. A lot of times when I think about those degrees, you know, think about the chemical engineering, I think about the business and public policy, and I think about the writing now, I think the common thread between all of those is a, a sense of wonder and a sense of creativity. I feel like those things have always been part of who I am. Uh, and so it, it infiltrates whatever it is that I'm doing. I think chemical engineering, there's a lot of creativity that's part of that, that I don't think a lot of people think about because we often focus in on kind of the hard sciences that are necessary for engineering. And, and I think for me, um, you know, there, there was that interest in kind of how things are created, how things work, and that sense of wonder of what we could actually do, what we could actually build. So I think, you know, that was there. I think um, when I think about the business degree, and I think about the public policy, I, I really feel like that brought together still the creativity, but also creativity directed at more of a sense of the pursuit of justice in the world. So that was really what was driving that. So then when we arrive at writing now, I know it seems like it's really distant. And yet for me, I actually, in my own head, I can see the connections and how I ended up in this place. I think I have always been a person who has enjoyed words. I mean, even from a very young age, I've kept a journal for many, many years. And my mother gave me an old uh, exam, like an old, like, uh, what would you call it, kind of career assessment that I took in high school. And it was really interesting because uh, kind of engineering and analysis was one of the very high categories, but writing was also one of the very high categories. And so I think to me that just speaks of this reality that we are complicated people. We're, We're complex people. And I think our society is eager to, Put people in particular categories so we can better identify what we think they are and where we think they should fit, and I think in a way, my path is trying to say that actually it's not so simple to do that, and um, the person who might love math and science can equally love you know how a beautiful sentence flows.:
0: Now, uh, last year you released all the colors. We will see reflections on barriers, brokenness, and finding our way. This book is a collection of essays written for various publications about your life journey as a Jamaican-American from Alaska to South Africa to the American South. And you write on so many things, including marriage and immigration and parenthood and childhood and race. Um, So I guess let's begin with, uh, why did you use the medium of essay to tell your story?
1: Yeah. So as I was saying earlier, I found writing when I had moved to South Africa. And i that was kind of when I first stepped into writing. And I, I felt like there were these personal stories of my life that I wanted to tell that I was writing about. And it was only maybe about a year, year and a half later that I took a writing class. And I discovered this form called the essay that I had never really thought much about beyond the essays we learned to write in high school and thinking about, you know, the five paragraph essays or the college entrance essays, but I hadn't really encountered this concept of a personal essay and I, you know, Andy, I was just taken with it. I thought, oh my goodness, this is what I'm doing. This, this is it. And, and I now actually teach classes about writing essays. And I still see that with my students that they show up in a class and they realize, oh, I've been doing this and I didn't even know what it was called. So, so I think in a way, it wasn't so much that I chose the essay form to tell my story, but in a way the essay form chose me to tell the stories. But I think part of why I love the essay so much is that I um I didn't necessarily feel like I had one concrete story to tell that you might maybe get if you were writing a memoir or something of that nature. Instead, I had a bunch of little stories to tell. And I think my essays still are memoir and feel, many of them. But I, I really liked to just ponder and consider the ideas and ruminate on the ideas that came up because of the stories that I kept thinking about in my own experience, in my own life. And so so it really became like this natural way to just Start writing essays. So when I started writing essays, I had no uh, idea that I was actually ultimately going to be writing a book. I was just writing one essay after the next, and writing about these themes that I care about. So writing about the ways it was for me to move as a black woman in society, as the child of Jamaican, um, the child of Jamaican immigrants in you know our very racialized American society, I, I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about what it was like for my own particular journey of my hair, again, as a Black woman interacting with my hair. And so I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about kind of the, the ways in which I experienced my own story of being the child of immigrants and now thinking about my own children and the stories that they have as the child of an immigrant as well. And so, you know, these were just... it it seemed like they were kind of disparate stories that they weren't all nicely connected in one overarching story. And so that's why I really feel like the essay form found me because it became the perfect way to tell many stories that ultimately would build to this one overarching large story.
0: Hmm. Now, I mean, as I was reading the book, um, you wrote with such honesty and transparency. I mean, you touch on matters of hurt and redemption and love and pain so why such a transparent approach with your audience?
1: You know, I, I would say, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for those kind words. And I appreciate that sense of transparency and honesty that comes through that you saw that. Because I feel like for me, the only way I can tell a story is, you know, truthfully and honestly, that um, that, that is how I want to be when I tell a story. Now, I will say this there are certainly things within my book that I held back. Uh, I guess I should say they're not in my book, but there are parts of the story that I felt like I wanted to keep close and that wasn't going to be part of the essay. So, So it's not as though everything is there, but I do think that there's a sense that the more specific we are about our stories, the more specific we are in our experiences, that's what actually enables us to connect more deeply with readers because they see the specificity of our stories. And so I often talk about when I'm teaching classes about writing that it's within the specificity of our stories that we're able to connect to something that might be universal. So one of the examples I give is there's an essay in the book called For My Husband Driving Down a Mountain. And it's about watching my husband, a black man, drive away in the aftermath of several police shootings of black men. Um, and so it, it's about like fear for his safety. It's about love for him, but I'm very specific with my experience. And and I have heard from people how much they resonate with that story. People who are not, you know, they're, it's not, they're not a black woman, they're not a black man, uh, but they're resonating with the story because what I have detailed in the transparency and honesty of that experience is the deep love that I have for the man that I'm married to. And so what then readers are able to connect with that sense of love that I have for another human being, because they also understand what it is love. So I think there's something about transparency and honesty that actually allows us to connect with people's stories. And when we connect with people's stories in this way, that we are then able to identify the things we have in common, but even more to recognize the things that are different, right? That we recognize that actually we're not all living the same experience, that we don't need to just reduce this to the commonality of human experience. Because as human beings, we are living different experiences. As a Black woman in America, as my husband being a Black man in America, we are experiencing life in a different way than maybe someone of another race is experiencing life.
0: Well, one of the fascinating aspects of your book is, with that transparent tone, is that you take us, you take us into the experience that many, many of your readers, uh, specifically, I would say, you know, white readers, aren't able to experience themselves and the significance of moments. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one dynamic mm-hmm. example of this to me was in the chapter uh, called "In the Year of O.J. Simpson and Huckleberry Finn," and mm-hmm. the chapter's mm-hmm. title gives the context of your. 10th grade year, the reading Mark Twain and O.J. Simpson trial, and you describe the day of the verdict um, like this. A collective sigh settled over much of the building. Audible groans pulsed through the school as hordes of students began to file along to the next classes. Two other black students walked past each other in the tight spaces of the hallway. They clapped palms, touching palm reverberated as the girl high-fived the boy. Take us into mm. the significance of, of this chapter for for your life and for um, your upbringing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like this chapter is really speaking to several things. I think it's speaking to the, this idea of what does it feel like to be a black student in a basically white classroom, uh, even in a classroom where people may want to be sensitive to you know, the the experience of others in the classroom, but not knowing what it might feel like. So this is part of what I'm talking about in this particular essay, that I'm in this classroom in 10th grade, I am reading uh, Huckleberry Finn, and they are, that book uses, you know, it uses the N word maybe 200 times, and and we're reading this book, and I'm having to sit with this, and and realizing as I'm writing this essay that many of my classmates, my teachers, they they have no full awareness of what this might feel like for me. So I think there's that. I think the other thing that's happening in this essay is that sense of, I don't want to say, maybe a sense of a lack of power that I have as the student to, to necessarily do something about this. Now, I think it's true, certainly, that some students would have done something, but for where I was in my own, like, formation of identity and who I was and when I chose to speak up at that point in my life, I felt unable to do something and and it's interesting because my father has obviously read this book. Well, I don't know, obviously not everyone's parents read their books, but my father has read this book and he said something to me that I wish he would have told us. I wish he would have said something so we could have said something and and I was saying to him, you know, I didn't even know that that was a choice that I could have in that moment because I think, you know, my parents, they were Jamaican immigrants, so much of their experience was not knowing kind of the history of an experience of being a black American in America. And so they wouldn't have necessarily been aware of you know, what might've been happening in the classroom. And so, so I think in that sense, it's kind of, I'm trying to get at that sense of lack of power that I feel there. I think the other thing that's happening in this essay though, and when you, when you read that point about the two students, the palms touching as they high five each other, There is my own growing racial identity awareness that is happening here, that I am seeing something and thinking, wow, that's something that maybe I could have too, that I could be part of that too. So I think those are all those elements that are going on. There's like that societal thing that's happening. There's that family thing that's happening, even though that's a little less spoken in the essay. And then there's that individual experience that's happening as well.
0: This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years center consultants coaches and educators have been supporting congregations clergy and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life including training ministers to manage transition helping congregations work through polarizing conflict coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry and assisting congregations in discerning god's call to future missions and ministry Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Identity matters, and um, what's fascinating for my family is to learn— Um, about our identity. My mother was adopted, so there's big questions about Mm -hmm. where I guess Mm -hmm. half of me comes from. Um, Right. It was curious enough, recently we found out that we have a little French, Canadian, and Scandinavian in our family, which none of us saw. But but in in the chapter on the degree of of blackness and and being me, you wrote, my mother would later dismiss the term African-American as too narrow for her. Her sentiment-matching words I would read about years later that spoke the ways Americans have generally paid a great deal of attention to ethnic differences within the white race while treating black Americans as if both a racial and ethnic group with no interracial differences. Take us a little deeper there.
1: Yeah, so I this is something that I try to get at in my book, is this idea that to be a black American is not necessarily that we all share one consistent story. And that, I feel, is something that happens in our country, that there's this idea that Black Americans share one particular narrative. Now, I think it's true that there's many things that we share in common, but there's many ways in which our stories differ. And I think historically, we just have not made space for that reality, that the stories of Black Americans are... there's just many robust differences that exist, many different kinds of stories that group within the umbrella of being a Black American. And so for me, I feel like by sharing my story, I am saying, hey, this story is part of being Black, a Black American as well, just like there's many, many other stories. Now, I think, you know, having been reading books since I was a child, I have seen even shifts in that over the years. So. I feel like what I may have, what stories I had access to as a child, um, and even a teenager, you know, I, I see that my daughters are going to have more examples of that, the the variety of stories that exist, the abundance of Black stories that exist. But but even still, I think it's just still very important. I remember someone picking up my book and saying, Oh, I want to read this so I can understand. It was a white reader picking up my book and saying, I want to read this so I can understand more about what it means to be a black person in America. And I was saying to them, this is just one story of what it means to be a black person in America. I, I would encourage people to read an abundance of stories because just like there's many different stories within, you know, like that quote mentioned within the white race, there's many different stories in the black race as well too. And so that's part of me telling my story. And, you know, I will add, there's several essays in the book maybe four or five, I can't remember how many, that actually inter- that have nothing to do with immigration experiences, nothing to do with racial identity formation, nothing to do with race, race relations. And it was really important to me that those stories were part of this book, because I wanted to show that I, I am a person with multiple experiences in life, that you know, all my stories are not just revolving around race. And so I, uh, so that was important to me that I wanted to include that I wanted to include stories about my parents' marriage and their divorce and stories about just growing up in Alaska and what that meant. Um, You know, just stories that interacted with my faith more directly, lots of different stories there. And so I, I feel like, ultimately, what I believe is we need to make space in the way in which we look at people to recognize that there is complexity within every human being. And the reality is that there are certain racial groups where we have tried to reduce that complexity. And I think that has been just a wrong committed against people.
0: Mm. So from the book, um, you get asked a lot about race and racial justice you know, as you were talking about here, what aspects of the book do you wish you were asked more about?
1: Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, so I will say this. I actually feel like I would like to at times talk more about some of the aspects of racial justice in the book. So I, I think a lot of questions that I talk about, involve racial identity formation or just identity formation in general. But there are some essays in the book, I think about For My Husband Driving Down a Mountain, which I mentioned earlier and concerns the um, police shootings of unarmed Black men. And then the the second to last essay in the book, An Abundance of Impossible Things, and that concerns living in the South in the aftermath of the Charleston massacre. And I, I think those two essays particularly Really deal with racial injustice issues and broken race relations, and I feel like that honestly, as much as people have told me they love those essays and they have been valuable to them, I find that those are not essays that get talked about as much and i don 't know if it's that people are more nervous to engage in those topics or um, I, you know i 'm just not sure andy but but actually i I think those are things that I feel like I would like to be speaking into more, addressing more, that sometimes I feel like conversation can get very wrapped up in the idea that we all have identity stories and it's important for us all to know our identity stories. And, I, and while I think that's very much true, I don't necessarily feel like that is all of what my book is.
0: Well, story is, is core to the book. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it is a composition yeah. of, of your stories. You know, so I wonder, as you've been um, navigating uh, readers with this, that, um, you know, how, how would you express or how would you challenge people? How would you encourage people to, to share their story with others? Mm.
1: You know, that's interesting because I actually, in terms of sharing stories with others, I have... I have done several initiatives that have been working towards that. So I do teach a workshop called Identity, Finding the Stories that Form Us, that talk about ways in which we can identify our stories. So I've led a couple different workshops about that. In Charlotte, I was actually part of something called the Beautiful Truth Initiative, which was we have a local literary center here called the Charlotte Center for the Literary Arts. And they put together this program where they gathered people in libraries across the city over the month of January, so that people could participate in these workshops about finding and writing their stories. And so I actually wrote the curriculum for that. And then my newsletter subscribers, people who sign up for my newsletter, they actually get a uh, kind of a A booklet of activities that they can do to help identify and think about their own stories. So, so I feel like part of the journey is for people to all recognize that we all have stories. I think a lot of people feel like maybe Just writers have stories or they don't necessarily spend a lot of energy thinking about their stories. So So that's really something that in the aftermath of this book publishing that I have been trying to speak about more, uh, invite people to consider their own stories. uh, And like I said, I created this booklet of activities to help people think about their own stories. But in terms of sharing stories and where we do that, I think part of it is choosing to maybe share stories when we're with the people we care about, whether it's you know, around a dinner table and just making space to ask questions that allow people to engage with their stories, or just taking a few extra minutes to to sit with someone and listen to their stories. Um, and I, I feel like in this way, we we are better people as we hear and understand um, people's different experiences that we we feel like we are able to maybe see something differently about the world than we did before because of people's stories that they share.
0: As I was alluding to earlier, I mean, your story is not uh, a common story. And we uh, often don't get such an intimate glimpse into the life um, of a Jamaican-American. Um, you know, why do you think it's so difficult for people to share their stories? And, and how might we encourage people also to, uh, to navigate the waters of listening um, to other people's stories?
1: Yeah, so... I will say in terms of why I think it might be difficult for people to share stories is I I just feel like as a society, and I think as a society, I mean, particularly as, you know, our American society, I know you have readers from, or listeners, excuse me, from many parts of the world, so it may not be the same in other parts of the world, but I feel like we don't actually create a lot of room for people to share stories. We we are quick to move one thing to the next thing. I think we tend to be very future oriented. So we're not necessarily in uh, places where we sit and want to look back. Now, I know this is, that's kind of a blanket statement. I, I certainly know it's not everyone. It's not like that all places. I think you'll certainly find different parts of the country and different communities that are more engaged with that. But I. I do think there is something about choosing to actively say that we want to make space for stories and hearing people's stories. And we want to take time to do that. So I think that's one thing. I do think some of the other things that the difficulty comes that I think we have almost created like a hierarchy of stories in our society. We've kind of indicated that certain stories are more important than other stories and so i think it's very easy for some people to feel like well my story is not important and my story doesn't matter and my story doesn't add anything here so i don't need to so i feel like that's some of the work that i like to do is try to break that hierarchy of stories that we have and i i think the hierarchy comes in all sorts of different ways even um you know just what stories tend to be out there more often whether it's um you know, people who are well known, or people who have done something spectacular, people who have done something very interesting, or um, I think we could also break it down into different other kinds of categories. Like, uh, I think about books that have been published over the years, and how there's just often an abundance of white stories that exist. And that message that gets sent is that, you know, those stories are the important ones, when that's actually not True, that they're all important, and we actually need to give more voice to the stories we don't hear as much, that we need to create more spaces to hear the stories that we don't hear as much. So, I think those are some of the reasons why we encounter difficulty. Uh, and now, on to your second question, where you were talking about what we can do to be better listeners or to engage better with people's stories, is one of the things that I think often happens, Um, and this has been my experience, and I know the experience of others, is that I think that people are often, they desire to quickly identify the commonalities that they share with someone else's story, and maybe speak that. And I think sometimes we need to just slow down in terms of looking for the similarities. I think maybe we can make those connections in our minds, but I think sometimes we just have to slow down a little bit before we verbalize that because sometimes the stories really aren't the same kinds of experiences. It's not the same thing. And what that can do is further silence somebody. And so I know I've had that experience where I've shared something of what it was to grow up as a black girl in a predominantly white community. And someone will say something and say, oh, I had that same experience too. And they really didn't. And it it really wasn't the same because they didn't have a race component that was part of their experience. They may have had something different. And in that way, I feel like we've kind of shut down what it was that I was sharing and now shifted to what this person wants to talk about. So I think we just need to be careful of doing that as well. So uh, yeah, so those are just some Thoughts that I have about how we, why it is that it can be difficult, and maybe how we can be better listeners.
0: So the book's been out a, a year. Uh, what kind of response have you gotten it from has- your readers?
1: Oh, amazing response from my readers! I I have just been so grateful for the emails that people have sent me, uh, the just the words of encouragement people have shared, the notes people have sent. I've even gotten some handwritten notes. Uh, the you know, direct messages on social media. But what I feel like is that people, I think people who may have a lot of similarities with my particular journey. So grew up as a, maybe grew up as a black girl in a predominantly white community, or maybe uh, they are the child of immigrants themselves, something of that nature. I have felt like people have shared with me that by me telling my story, it's, It's helped them feel seen in the world, seen and known and that their story matters too. And that's been really amazing to think about that by me sharing my story, I've helped to elevate their experience and their story. And then I think from readers who do not necessarily share my cultural background or my particular experience, things of that nature, they have shared with me how this book has really shifted the way that they have seen life and that they they just see it with different eyes. And, you know, Andy, that's amazing too, because that's really the heart of what I care about is that we share stories so that we can um, be changed and pursue equity and justice in the world. That that I care about that, not just sharing stories for the sake of sharing stories, but how sharing stories can change us as people so that we can be in pursuit of a more just and equitable
0: world. As you um, alluded to earlier, you uh, do a good bit of speaking about the book. Uh, What's the best way for people to get connected with um, resources about you?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you can go to my website. It's patricegopo.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletter. And as I said, people who sign up for my newsletter, they'll receive that booklet about uh, finding your story that I've created for people. But you can always send me an email through there. I am on Instagram at at patricegopo. And I'm on Facebook at at patricegopo rights, And I am very, very occasionally on Twitter at at patricegopo.
0: Of course, we want people to go out and purchase all the colors we will see wherever books are sold. Um, Patrice, thank you for giving us a glimpse into your story with such transparency and honesty that in turn inspires us to share our story with such transparency and honesty.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation and I've just appreciated the time chatting.
0: Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.